Well, good afternoon. It's great to see you all on another Sunday and bring God's word to you. As we turn to Romans 8 today, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul makes very clear that there are essentially two ways to live this life. A way of death and a way of life. And that there is a very serious, inescapable choice to be made. Death or life. And how fundamentally that choice boils down to our minds. What kind of mind do you have today? Is your mind alive or is your mind dead? Because the answer to that question for you today is critical to determining your eternal destiny. It says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, I've got three points for you from today's text. Point number one is the way of death. That's verse five through verse eight. Point number two, the way of life. That's verse nine through verse 13. In point number three, you could almost say this is like point number two B because it fits under two, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll go with point number three. Point number three is the way of eternal life. Life. That's verse 14 through verse 16. So the way of death, the way of life, and the way of eternal life. Now, as a reminder, last time we learned that Paul is concluding a much larger argument that spans the length of Romans thus far. The question that then poses itself at this point is this What does it look like to walk according to the flesh? And what does it look like? to walk according to the Spirit. Because one leads to death, and one leads to life, and therefore eternal life. So point number one, the way of death. What leads to death, verses five through eight, tell us plainly. Verse five, what it does is it juxtaposes living according to the flesh with living according to the Spirit. And then what it does is it tells us the X factor in both equations is found nowhere else but the mind. 
Verse five reads that those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So without a doubt, the mind is the battlefield of the human heart, friends. The mind sets the agenda for your, your life each week, each day, each hour. And your mind is your compass for your eternal destiny. That's what Paul is saying here. That's the difference between the, the Christian and the non-Christian. It, it, it's most pronounced in the mind. But more specifically, it's in the desires of the mind. What does the mind meditate on? What does the mind commit itself to? It's the mind's desires. The mind's desires are entirely different. The renowned theologian Jonathan Edwards, he put it this way in his classic work titled Religious Affections. He said, that which men love, they desire to have and to be united to and possessed of. Those acts which men delight in, they necessarily incline to do. So there is an unquestionable connection then between what we love with our minds and whether or not we will endure as true Christians because your mind will set itself on what it loves. I've never thought I'd be interested in pursuing um, a PhD at this point, and that remains the case. But if I ever did, I've always felt that there's a good chance it would be on this subject right here. The Apostle Paul's theology pointing to the reality that if you want to change the way you live, you must ultimately change the way you think. Let me say that again. If you want to change the way you live, you must ultimately change the way you think. Here's another way of putting it. Your mind shapes your perception of the world and therefore each choice you make. To make different choices then, you need a different mind. We see this all throughout Paul's writings. He calls on us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, right? He prays time and time again, not that we would feel the love of Christ, never once does he do that actually, but that we would know the love of Christ. In Romans chapter one, where Paul is detailing the great problem with humanity, he says in verse 21, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then, of course, right here in our text today as well. Friends, the first and most basic test you can conduct on yourself to address whether you're living according to the flesh or living according to the Spirit is where is your mind at? Where is your mind at? What is your mind set on hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year? Has anything changed? Is your mind still consumed by the things of this world, by the lusts of the flesh, by the uptick in, in your bank or retirement accounts, by the appreciation or the approval uh, uh, of other people that you so long for? Here's another way of thinking about it. Are your spiritual New Year's resolutions always the same? Some of us here have been, as Paul says, living according to the flesh with our minds set on the things of the flesh for years. Some of us, even for decades, almost nothing's changed at all and it's always pushed off to next year. Some may even feel imprisoned by your desires. Better yet, many of you are currently imprisoned by your desires and you don't even know it because you haven't stopped to think about it. 
Paul put it this way in the book of Ephesians when talking about the fallen natural mind of those who are spiritually dead. He talked about being essentially a dead man or a dead woman walking, living in the, the passions of our flesh, he says, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Whatever felt good, you did it. Whatever looked good, you just went for it. Like a spiritual zombie being yanked around by the leash of your senses. You love this world. We love this world. Your mind is set on the things of this world. Comfort is king. Approval is required. Pleasure is essential. Riches are demanded. You may have thought all this time that you've been living by the Spirit through regular church attendance, which is a good thing, or goodwill towards others, or because you know a lot of things in the Bible— when in reality, friend, if you check your mind and your desires, you find that they're engulfed in the things of the flesh. You may very well be, as verse 6 says, spiritually dead, headed for an eternity of death. The path to pursuing death in this life, the path to pursuing death forever, obey your mortal mind. Embrace it. Give in to it. Make excuses for it. And as you follow its impulses and commands, kind of like the GPS of your life, it will lead you headlong into an eternal separation from God and all of his goodness forever. It says, the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. We'll get to that peace on the spirit and having peace in just a minute. Uh, but if you look at verse 7, it says for or because, right? So the reasons the mind is set on the flesh, the reason the mind set on the flesh leads to death is because, it says there, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For or because it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. You see, it's not just the mind of the flesh uh, is like spiritually uh, dead in some kind of neutral state, like rest in peace, uh, mind of the flesh, or rest easy, you harmless thing. No, not only is the mind of the flesh spiritually dead, it's openly hostile to God and his laws. It's resistant to it. It, it actively clenches its teeth at him. You ever play with magnets before as a kid? Uh maybe an adult. Now they stick together. You know, you have a north side, you have a south side. What happens when you flip one over and you try to connect two north ends or two south ends? No matter how hard you try, there's this force that just repels them away from one another. And that is what we're talking about here. That's how it is with the natural person, the mind of the flesh and God. The mind of the flesh actively resists God. It despises him. It won't stop pushing back against him and his design for humanity. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's at war with God. Therefore, it cannot please him, as verse 8 says. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I wonder if this is a, a hard thought for anyone here today, that, that those who are in the flesh, those who are spiritually dead, in other words, those who are not Christians, there's nothing they can do to please God. Even the most touching 
tear-jerking, sweetest and selfless stories of acts of kindness, the things that go viral, none of it pleases God apart from Christ. Because the Bible tells us that all of it in one form or another is tainted by sin. Another way of saying it is that none of those things are done by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. And as Paul says six chapters later in Romans 16, he says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we are so thrilled to have you with us today. There, thank you so much for being here. We've truly been praying for you. But we also love God. And we trust him for what he has to say in his word. And we know from his word that those who love us most in this life, those who love you most in this life are those who love you enough to tell you the truth. Just as Jesus did throughout his ministry. And the truth we find in the Bible, indeed in this text, is that there is nothing you do that pleases God. There is nothing that you can do or will do to please God. That is what this text says. There is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to manipulate him into thinking you're a better person than you really are. And to be clear, we know this because this is the case for all of us. This is the case for all of us left to ourselves in our own works and our own intuition. We can do nothing to please God. Because, friends, God is infinitely holy, meaning he's totally set apart. He's perfect. He's totally incorruptible. He is the most righteous, the most fair, the most pure being in all of existence. That's why our attempts at being good and our attempts at being righteous, they fall miserably short. But here's the thing, the God of the universe who gives us breath this very moment as you sit in your chair, who has patiently endured our wickedness year after year, day after day, hour after hour, our constant rebellion, our constant idolatry, our pride, this God has made a way for us to indeed be redeemed and reconciled to himself, to be made new, to be set back in right relationship with him. How? Romans 8, 1 through 4, our text from last time, says by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You see, Jesus Christ, God incarnate in love, took on this flesh, took on our sin, became a man so that he might be made a curse on that day on the cross. And he bore the divine weight of God's wrath against our sin and all sin. That his life might be credited to us. His perfect life might be credited to our lives. And therefore, we might inherit with him eternal life. For anyone who would turn from their sin, turn from living according to the flesh, and put their trust in Jesus. Think of that magnet example I gave earlier. You take those two north ends, you take those two south ends, you try to connect them, it's simply impossible until one flips. Until one turns around and becomes one with the other. That is what God calls us to in the gospel, friends. Turn from your sins. Turn to the one who loves you and gave himself for you. This is the way that leads to life, from death to life, which leads us into our second point for today, the way of life. 
So we have the way of death, which is to obey and give in to your mortal mind. And we have the way of life. We saw up in verse six that the mind that is set on the spirit is life and peace. And this is a a big deal, friends. The one whose mind is consumed with, is oriented towards the things of God is the Christian. And the Christian, therefore, is the only one able to actually have peace in this life. True, everlasting peace. The Christian is the only one able to live this life truthfully, to live this life honestly. And what I mean by that is they can live in light of who they truly are and live live in light of who God truly is. What a grand source of peace that is. We don't have to fake it. For anyone here who's exhausted, being constantly dissatisfied or or frustrated, constantly chasing and lusting after the, the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, there is peace to be had for you today. There is new life for you today. Undoubtedly, this text is a text addressed to Christians, to those who are spiritually alive. And this text is such an important chapter on the Holy Spirit because one key truth it makes plain is that all Christians have the Holy Spirit, not just some who reach certain levels of spirituality or are capable of certain spiritual gifts. But then if you look at verse 9 and 10, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So if you have Christ, this is saying, you have the Spirit. If you have believed the gospel, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. And if you have the Holy Spirit, of course, you are called to live in accordance with that reality. So the way of life is to live as the one who has the Spirit dwelling in them. And to be clear, living according to the Spirit does not mean like a kind of mystical guidance on the whim in your decision-making or having all the feels when your favorite worship song comes on. No, living according to the Spirit means being under the dominating influence of the Holy Spirit as he convicts you of sin and doesn't allow you to keep making excuses for it. As he, as he pours the love of Christ into your heart, as you focus on him and not on yourself. As he sanctifies you by stirring your affections towards God and away from this world. As he helps you pray, even when you have no idea where to start or what words to say. As he empowers you to see and obey and love Christ in his word, that's what it looks like to live according to the Spirit. And that leads us to a couple of big ifs to consider. One in verse 9 and one in verse 10. If you look there, verse 9 says, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and then verse 10 picks it up, it says, if Christ is in you. So Paul is basically writing to those who have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, yet also kind of issues this test by saying, if you have him dwelling in you. What was he said to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians? He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And so professing Christian here today, are you in the faith? Is Christ's spirit in you? 
Remember, those who are in Christ have already been justified by grace and are without any condemnation. It's not so much about proving your faith as it's kind of like you're passing somebody's test. It's examining yourself to pass what the Bible expects from born-again believers. In other words, the Spirit's work inside of us needs to show itself outside of us. And not as the root of your faith, you might have heard, but the fruit of it. If there is no fruit from your faith, could it be that there is no root? That's the reason the tree of your life is not producing fruit. It could be because you're actually dead. Are you one who is dead or alive today? Because this text is a good gut check for us to consider. Verse 9 also says in the second half, it says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So there's a sense of belonging here. In the tree example, think of like a massive living tree with all sorts of branches and you being one of those branches. Are you one who serves as evidence that the tree is indeed living? Or does the fruit of your life or lack thereof indicate instead that you're not a part of that tree at all? That you're, you're a dead branch? A good pulse check again of whether or not you belong to Christ. Think with me. Do you desire the same things that he does? Do you find joy in the giving of yourself to others? In the salvation of sinners? In the growth of other Christians? In seeing God receive the glory instead of you? This is what Christ delights in. And this is what those who belong to him delight in. Even though our bodies are still dead because of sin, as verse 10 says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. I said last time that this is what it looks like to live in the already but not yet. Our flesh is still fallen in this life. Our flesh still craves the fleeting pleasures of this world, absolutely. Our flesh is still hostile to God, but that's why we need to die to shed these bodies so that God might resurrect us to a new one. That our bodies might match our regenerated spirits. That the spirit would rule in the kingdom of Christ instead of constantly being at war against the flesh in the kingdom of Adam. That's why Paul is talking about at the end of chapter seven when he said that he sees in his body another law waging war against his mind. That's what Peter talks about when he pleads with believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which he says wage war against your soul. Christian, right now, as you sit there, there is a war taking place over your soul right now between the flesh and the spirit. And as we learned in point number one, what they're doing is they're battling over your mind says, although your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. As a reminder, the spirit being life because of righteousness here is the spirit being life because of the righteousness of Christ ruling as a result of the realities of the gospel. Because of the law being fulfilled on our behalf. Remember, God now considers us to have fully obeyed the law's demands because of Christ's obedience for us. That's the righteousness we're talking about here. So what is the way of life? It's living freely in the spirit as one who God considers the law to be entirely fulfilled on your behalf. It's living as one who is blameless before God and at peace with him. And that leads us to verse 11. 
It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the other way the Christian is to live this life is in hope. It's in hope. Christians are to be hopeful in this life because your spiritual resurrection, friends, will lead to your physical resurrection. That's what's awaiting you. Christians have been gifted regenerated minds as like precursors to regenerated bodies. We can live in hope of our glorious inheritance. We can live in hope of eternal life. We can live in hope of seeing our Savior face to face. We can live in hope of the resurrected body matching the resurrected spirit. So then, as verse 12 says, we are debtors. We are debtors, meaning literally obligated to something else. Think of like your student loans or your creditors or your mortgage lenders. You are bound to them in a certain way. But Paul says we're debtors not to live according to the flesh anymore. But because of this everlasting hope awaiting us by implication, we are in joyful debt to living according to the Spirit. Amen? Because, verse 13, verse 13 now, it's like the summary verse of this entire text so far. It says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There it is. Laid plain before you, two ways to live. Friends, you can live according to the flesh and you will die. You will die in this life and you will die in the next. You will spend all of your days cut off from God. But you who live according to the Spirit will experience fullness of life, a glorious and abundant eternal life. And what does living by the Spirit look like here according to Paul? Is it intense worship music? Is it some kind of Christian zen? No, according to Paul here, living by the Spirit looks like putting to death the deeds of the body. In other words, to live by the Spirit is to kill the works of the flesh in your life, to starve them of your temptations instead of constantly feeding them, to finally say no more to those sins that you've put up with year after year. In Romans 8, 13, this verse, it's the theme of an epic work by John Owen, if you've heard of him. It's called The Mortification of Sin or The Killing or The Destruction of Sin. Some top notes from Owen's work, just in my own little mashup here. If sin is always acting, we must always be mortifying. Always be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Unmortified sin darkens and dries up the soul and deprives it of its peace. Sin is like a grave that is never satisfied. But there is no self-endeavor that can accomplish mortification. Almighty energy is necessary for its accomplishment. Why would you trust the body that continues to betray you to deliver you? We must go to the great physician of our souls and find healing in his blood. The words here describe a kind of wartime mentality, a wartime ruthlessness against sin. Not just wishful thinking, kind of a moderate resistance not trifling or playing around with sin, not getting as close as you possibly can to it in secret, in your incognito browsers or your secondary social media accounts or the friends you think nobody knows about. 
but a wartime vigilance against your sin because there is no neutral, friend. You are heading one way or the other. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I remember a number of years ago, there was this kind of this back-to-back-to-back news headlines about Christians being persecuted pretty intensely around the globe, being put to death for their profession of faith. This was during the height of, of ISIS activity, and I know I myself during that time, I'm sure many of us have thought at one point or another, man, if that came down to it for me, would my faith hold up in the moment? With a bounty on my head, or a blade to my neck, would my faith hold? Would I stand firm in the face of death? Because going back to the mind, especially what we know versus what we feel, I can tell you, friends, feelings will not hold up in that moment. You will feel scared, you will feel threatened, and you will have every impulse to deny Christ, just as Peter did. But you want a good test of whether or not your faith will hold in that moment. You want a a good check for whether you have the spirit or not. Are you battling your sin? Are you struggling against your sin? Are you fighting it? Because if you're not, and I'm you, I would be very concerned about what that means for the state of your soul. And let me be clear, this battling, this, this fighting is not just like a kind of white-knuckle, white uh, uh, self-sufficient, works-based approach to being as good of a person as possible. That's what verse 1 is there for. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, certainly. So this battle isn't just being a soldier. It's about fighting as a precious son and daughter. It's about leaning into the grace of the Father, It's about leaning into the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. It's about leaning into the power of the Holy Spirit as sons and daughters because, friends, only a true child fights in this way. Again, the Spirit empowers us not primarily by giving us uh, a kind of special boost of obedience in the moment, although certainly that can be true, but primarily by pouring the love of Christ into our hearts and convincing us of his great redeeming work on the cross for us. Some ways we can live according to the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. One, be regular and disciplined in your Bible reading, not just out of duty in order to earn God's favor, but as an act of war against your sin. Another is to to make a priority uh, of prayer in your life as you go to and from the throne of grace. Third, be willing to be held accountable by other church members who love you and have committed to praying for you and walking with you. And finally, catch yourself when your, your mind begins to drift and to set itself on the things of the flesh reorient it to the spirit instead of focusing on what was right there in front of you lift your eyes upward to the glory that will be revealed at the coming of Lord Jesus Christ these are just a few ways you can cultivate a heart for obedience friends because the fight for obedience is the fight for faith and once you give up that fight for obedience no doubt about it you will give up the fight of faith your sin will consume you and it will dry up your soul and destroy you. And while I'm here, let me just take a second and encourage everyone here who is fighting, who are battling. You've been carrying a weight 
with you for years even. Those of you who are waging war against the passions of the flesh who seek to destroy you. This should be a tremendous encouragement to you today. Each and every time you take a stand against your sin and temptation, it makes you stronger. You won't always win. You won't always come out unscathed, but like a warrior or gladiator that kind of marches down his opponent, you're on the way to victory, brother or sister, whether in this life or the next one. You, you know why else this should be such a great encouragement is because it shows us very objectively that you ultimately want the things of the Spirit. You desire the things of God. Your mind is set on living according to the Spirit, even if it doesn't mean perfection or even close to it this side of heaven. You're fighting, and that's what matters, Christian. Perhaps you're here today, maybe you feel a little bit lost, a bit hopeless, maybe a bit annoyed, or a bit like this uh, kind of vigilance sounds exhausting. Let me just ask all things aside. Do you truly want to live? Do you truly want to live? Because to live in the freedom of a resurrected spirit is the most glorious reality we can have in this life. Not just uh, uh, doing whatever your body and mind tell you to do all the time. Not just living by mere impulse according to what the people of this world that odds are maybe you don't even like very much, what they keep constantly telling you to do, telling you to pursue, telling you need to find worth and value and meaning in. The well-known pastor and theologian from New York City, uh, Tim Keller, he's had a lot to say on this issue, especially in that city. So to just sum up some of his sentiments, we have to realize, friends, that a lack of constraints does not equate to more freedom. Follow with me here. A lack of constraints does not equate to more freedom. That's just what we're told. We're told that the less restraints you have on you, the freer you are, and that's just not true. I grew up consuming absolutely enormous amounts of dairy, right? I'm not even uh, uh, joking. I'm talking like, like three or four tall glasses of chocolate milk every single meal. Every single meal. I once ate an entire gallon of ice cream, an entire box of Keebler cookies in one sitting. Um, large pizzas in full, no problem. Whole milk exclusively. You get the picture, it's disgusting and I'm not proud of it. Then something crazy happened. About 10 years ago, my body started not being able to handle dairy anymore. And after so many attempts to try and cheat the system, I'm talking years, Carissa had to put up with so much. I got to the point where it was just no longer worth it anymore, honestly. I had conflicting desires. I wanted to eat anything I wanted to eat. You know what it's like to have Super Bowl Sunday and not be able to eat pizza? But I also wanted to feel good physically. And eventually one won out. Dairy had to go. More from Keller on this. He says, freedom is the ability and the willingness to choose the more liberating desire over the more confining desire. So in other words, we have to strategically lose one freedom in order to gain another. It's a strategic loss for a strategic gain. Because the reality is that everyone at one point or another takes on certain constraints in life, whether it's the disciplined student studying or it's the diet of the diabetic. And we've also been taught to believe that any lack of freedom is oftentimes it's due to external factors. It's everybody else out there impinging on my freedom. It's God impinging on my freedom. 
It's everyone else's fault. Whereas Jesus would say, no, it's here. It's right in you. It's in us. It's in all of us because we are all slaves to sin. And sin is the ultimate enemy of freedom. Because deep inside the human heart is a resisting impulse that says, nobody will tell me what to do and nobody will tell me how to live my life. And do you feel that? Do you feel that tension, especially when it comes to reading things in the Bible, friends? Whether in calls to for perhaps abandon everything you have, give to the poor, submitting yourself to other church members or church leaders, Commands on giving up your finances, on, on sexual ethic, on gender roles, or, or not retaliating, or living lives of persecution and suffering this side of heaven. Do you feel that tension? Well, friends, that is evidence of the flesh resisting against God. Resisting against living according to the Spirit. Again, we all sacrifice freedoms for greater freedoms. Every day of our lives, Keller uses the example of violating the owner's manual in a car. Right? True freedom right, would be using whatever oil you want to use, whichever one has the nicest packaging, whichever one is cheapest. Because the modern idea of freedom is it's all about you. It's all about what you want and what you desire. But what happens when you use the wrong oil? What happens if you use an oil that doesn't fit with the design of the vehicle? Well, it's going to break on you. And that would lead to a far greater loss of freedom. You're going to be carless. So what do you do to live a freer life? You accept the constraints. Brothers and sisters, the way of life is the life lived in true freedom, not this fake freedom the world tries to sell you. Living according to what it's designed for, living according to what the designer intended for it to be. It's living as one united in a covenantal relationship with the one true God, not apart from him. Because if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And you won't find that just in this life. You'll find it in the next as well, which leads us into our third and final point, the way of eternal life. So we have the way of death, we have the way of life, and now a much shorter point, the way of eternal life. Verse 14 through verse 16. Just to be clear again, point number two and point number three are really connected. They're not like two different paths. Uh, there's not three paths here, but one in the same path. Jesus taught that he came to give life now and life abundantly. In John's gospel, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the way of life really is the way of eternal life. The ultimate reality of the already but not yet is the life we fully enjoy now that will extend into all of eternity, amen? Our final three verses for today read, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Your NIVs will use the word children there instead of sons. The Greek word there is the word sons, but undoubtedly this is talking about all of the children of God, so his precious sons and daughters. And what these last three verses are saying is that God adopts into his family all those who he's made alive by his spirit. That if you have the spirit, you're not just going to live a joyful, hopeful life in this life. You're not just going to be resurrected. You're also right now adopted as a, a, a member of God's family, uh, the family of the living God. 
J.I. Packer, he puts it this way. He wrote, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. As God loved his only begotten son, so he loves those he has adopted. This is from the Christian classic, Knowing God. You've probably heard us talk about it. I don't know if we have a copy or two left on the bookstall. I'm not exaggerating. Chapter 19 of Knowing God it's called Sons of God, in my opinion, is one of the best single chapters in, 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 in any book outside of the Bible. So if you can't read the whole thing, I'd encourage you to pick it up. Read chapter 19, Sons of God, and Knowing God. It will teach you about what adoption means for Christians. But friends, truly, we cannot understand our standing as Christians if we don't first understand our privileges in adoption. The term used here is the Greco-Roman term for bestowing all of the legal rights and privileges as though one was someone's natural child. How amazing it is to know God, yet how glorious it is to be cherished by him. Amen? Church, what does it look like to live eternally? It's simply enjoying being a child of the living God, totally independent of anything you've ever done or could do. This is the way of eternal life. It's receiving grace upon grace forever because of the sovereign love of our sovereign Lord. And then verse 15 says that you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Think of like an employee at a company. What's the difference between an employee at a massive corporation and an employee in a family business? One is works-based and the other is familial. One is all about your performance, whereas the other is about your relationship. At the large corporation, you could be scared. You can operate out of fear, always performing, always seeking to impress. Your reputation is always at stake. You're always having to be on. Well, this text shows us that could not be farther from the case with God our Father. Because a spirit of fear, a spirit of slavery, sees God as boss and not God as Father. And having been adopted into the family of God, brothers and sisters, look around. In the already but not yet, this is it. The kingdom of God. The new covenant people. The adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. The local church. And in the same way, Pastor James, Pastor Jake, Pastor Jeremy, we love you, but we are not your bosses. We're not your supervisors where you need to feel like you can't be yourselves with us or like you always have to be on the top of your game as some kind of spiritual high achiever. No, we're, may, we're just under shepherds of the chief shepherd here to care for you and pray for you and teach you and help you follow Jesus. And that goes for fellow church members as well. These aren't, just, these aren't your coworkers or your classmates, friends. You have no need to view one another as just people to impress with spirituality or as people you can't be open and honest with. How are you doing? Great, how are you? Might be the case, but also, how are you doing? Honestly, it's been a really hard week. I feel empty. I could really use some wisdom in prayer. This is why we say brother and sister, church. Let's make sure we act like it. Because living life with a spirit of slavery and fear is brutal. Hang with me here. We're almost done, and that's, that's not what the Lord calls us to. Living life to simply impress others or impress God out of fear of rejection or with chronic imposter syndrome, God says here in his word, stop. 
You are a precious child of mine. You are my precious children. You are members of my household. You're bound for a glorious eternal inheritance. The final part of our text, it says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, particularly as we cry out to him as Abba, Father. Just a very brief note on this. Contrary to some modern opinions, no, this does not mean daddy. While, yes, it certainly signals a simple, secure, and affectionate relationship, childlike and, uh, uh, childlike trust and obedience, it still requires a large degree of reverence and amazement for who he is and what he's done. On that, it's important to note, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is praying in the Gospel of Mark, this is how he addresses God. This is how he addresses the Father. Think of that moment, the intensity of that moment. It's that kind of cry from our spirit, like when you have nothing except him. The way of eternal life, then, is to recognize that there is no one above him, no one beside him, nothing or no one to be valued over him as you simply enjoy your adoption and all of its benefits forever. So are you dead or alive, friend, today? Are you caught obeying your flesh? Is your mind set on the things of this world? Friend, if so, you can be made alive today. The Lord holds out his wounded hands for you, ready to resurrect you from your spiritual and physical grave. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Jesus. Paul wrote in chapter six, he said, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed because the end of those things is death, friend. You have the way of death. You have the way of life, the way of life eternal before you. Which will you pursue? In closing, the great John Newton, 18th century Puritan pastor, preacher, he once penned a hymn that gets to the very heart of what we've just considered. I'm just gonna read an excerpt from it and we're just gonna leave it there. He wrote, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, can change a slave into a child and a duty into choice. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the power of your spirit in our lives. We pray that you would continue to strengthen your spirit in us as we seek to live according to your will and your ways for our good and your glory, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.